enough to almost make me cry. Because I mean, it's that's that's my goal, right? You know, I've had other supervisors that have been just as impactful as my first one, and I think the biggest thing, and I tell this to practicum students all the time, even to the clinicians on my team, is pay it forward. Each and every day across the country, there are thousands of incredible Centria technicians and clinicians providing ABA therapy to individuals with autism. And this show is about telling their stories and the stories of our tireless staff that support this powerful mission. I'm your host, Timothy Yeager, and this is the Do Wonders Podcast. And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Do Wonders Podcast. I have to say, I'm still fired up from last week's episode. Marissa Dean spoke passionately about the work that she does and really highlighted the powerful relationship that she had between her and her supervisor and how that guided her through the difficult times, motivated her through, and eventually led her to a career in ABA. Well, this week, we have that supervisor, Kiara Bettinger, a regional clinical director who is a powerful voice within our organization, known for being passionate, driven, and, and definitely someone that, as an organization, we need more people like. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, thank you for joining me, Kiara. Thanks for having me. Very excited. So I got to tell you, the reason why I reached out is I'd interviewed Marissa Dean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's one of our practicum students. And she said nothing but great things about you. But before we jump there, how about you tell our audience a little bit about you, okay. who you are, what you do at Centria, and how long you've been doing it? I am one of the regional clinical directors for the PNW, so Oregon and Washington, um, specifically telehealth. So when I got hired with Centria, I've been with the company now about three years. I think I was the second telehealth BCBA in Oregon that they hired. And over the last three years, we've grown to quite a big team, which is really exciting. I guess within my my role really help with the telehealth specific, you know, putting in those procedures and all those like best practice pr- processes that we use today. And I know Kelly's worked really hard with um, Kelly DaCosta with the practicum program. So I recently took point on that. So really working with our cohort lead because they really do help us quite, quite a bit with our telehealth clinicians. So working on those, you know, the organizational pieces of that. And I think that's, that's really it in a nutshell, you know, just the typical RCD looking at metrics and, you know, overlapping <laughs> my BCBAs and stuff. I don't know if I'd say typical. I think most people describe you as a rock star. Oh. So we <laughs> will go with that. Um, how'd you get in the field of behavior analysis? Yeah, So I graduated my undergrad in 2012. And at the time I was gun ho about being an OT, which is pretty mm. funny now sitting with a BCBA. Where'd you go to undergrad? Florida State University. So I'm from Florida and I'm, I'm local here. So graduated and, you know, at the time I, I would have had to do so many prereqs to get into a OT program. While I was in my undergrad, I worked with kids with special needs at, a, at an OT practice. And it ranged from kids with traumatic brain injuries, autism, Down syndrome, anywhere from I think the youngest kid they had, there was like one up to 14 or 15 so yeah, that was the track I was on. And outside of grad or undergrad, sorry, 
I applied for a job in behavior analysis, had no idea what it was other than they advertised as an autism therapist. And I was like, oh, okay. I've worked with some kids with autism. No clue what ABA was. I interview, mm-hmm. I get the job. They, it was like a four and a half week training. Pro- honestly, hands down, probably the best training I've ever had. And I wish we mm-hmm. could all model this, this training program, but I fell in love with it. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I remember my, during my training, it was maybe the second weekend and they started having me observe clients. I, I'm going into one of the, it was like a true clinic setting. So every kid had their one-on-one DTT room. I was walking into one to do an observation and this brand new tech is coming out because he had just did his observation and he's like bloody and scratched up and he's like sit in the corner. I'm sitting there terrified. Like, what am I doing? So I go in there and I watch this tech and she was amazing. I mean, so fast, just, you know, doing her, you know, we were trained with the box, you know, with the cards and So she was like going through the cards and response blocking and it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And so I eventually got my first client, again, terrified. And I would say not my first supervisor on the case. She was there briefly. My second supervisor, she, if it weren't for her, I probably wouldn't be in the field. She really took the time to teach me, didn't make me feel stupid if I, if I made a mistake. She really pushed me to start coursework at FIT. So At the time, I started just the first intro to behavior analysis course, and I loved it. And she actually happened to be my co-instructor. And so, you know, the pressure was really on. I was like, okay, she sees me once mm-hmm. a week. I got to make sure I get straight A's. So yeah, if, if it weren't for her, I probably wouldn't be in the field. And I just loved applying the science and seeing the progress that the kids made and seeing, you know, the impact that you could have on a family. You know, my first client ever, I think this is a client that I'll probably remember for the rest of my life. He was, he was vocal, not very functional communication, but vocal. And, you know, parents were so excited to have me there. Any help they could get. Mom had showed me a video of him. He was, I think, three by the time I started working with him. So up until the age of like two and a half, typically developing, talking, making eye contact, just your typical kid. And then one day he just started regressing. And so mm. for them, it was, they were still kind of in that grief period um, when I had come yeah. into their life. And the progress that we were able to make, like even right now, I have goosebumps even talking about it because I was so excited. And, you know, just that impact and, and knowing that I made a difference in their in their life, even something as simple as, you know, we got him to dress himself for the first time ever or the day he told his mom that he loved her, which was the first time since he had lost all of his skills that he was able to articulate mm. anything like that. So I, I think for me, it was almost like a drug. I was hooked. I couldn't get enough of yeah. it. So. So when you think back about that supervisor who had that impact Mm -hmm. on you and then, you know, Marissa said the exact same thing about you and why she's in this field. That's awesome. How does that make you feel? Enough to almost make me cry. Cause I mean, it's, that's, that's my goal, right? You know, I've had other supervisors that have been just as impactful as my first one. And I think the biggest thing, and I tell this to practicum students all the time, even to the clinicians on my team is, pay it forward. I hear it so often where clinicians want to tech with experience or even a family, you know, and, and rightfully so they want to tech with a ton of experience, but we all started with nothing. And someone along the way took us under their wing and trained us. And that's how we got to where we are now. And I've had some supervisors that were tougher than, than others. And even with that was its own learning experience. And for me, I, I take those experiences, okay, this is what the supervisor I don't want to be. 
I want to be the kind of mm-hmm. supervisor that someone comes to me, even if it's something personal, like, hey, my boyfriend broke up with me and I'm devastated and I don't know how I'm going to make it through the session. Or, hey, Kiara, can you sit with me and help me with my schoolwork? Because I have no idea what this research article is talking about. To me, I, I think it's important. And, you know, I see a lot of things on like social media, you know, where clinicians kind of complain a little bit about the field and, oh, these techs have no experience. It's like, we are the ones in control of that, right? Like we're the ones that bring in these students and these techs. It's it's our job, really, not only mm-hmm. to the industry, but hopefully you care enough about your client to put that energy into your technicians because that's really going to drive the, you know, the outcome. To me, I just think paying it forward. Someone did it for me and I would want to be that person for anybody that comes along in the field. That's pretty powerful because you have been already and early in your career. It's pretty awesome. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, Technician retention is a problem in our fields. We have a significant need for services and we don't have enough techs to provide those services. And then when we do find those techs, retaining them is a challenge. So can you speak a little bit about your role as a supervisor and how like within your responsibility you work to kind of address that? Yeah. So it's funny. I actually took some of the OBM courses last year. The only Mm. only thing I'm missing to get the certification is the project piece. And at the time I wanted to focus on tech retention and building out a scorecard. And, you know, I know we have a scorecard within Centria, but like even revamping that. And, but I think, Mm -hmm. you know, within our control as clinicians, especially with the resources we have at Centria, you know, you have the ability to provide some sort of reinforcement to the technicians. One thing I always remind my team is that it's not always monetary, right? You can work for an agency that maybe doesn't have resources. That doesn't mean you can't motivate your staff. Um, So I think within our scope, finding ways to motivate our staff. So when I had a caseload, one of the things I thought was really impactful was Once a month, I'd have my team meetings with my techs. Prior to that team meeting, I would pull from like the RBT task list and I'd say, okay, this is our topic for this month. I'd send it to them in advance. Like, here's the topic we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Here's some like really cool websites. Like I love ABI.com. Great website, has a ton of resources on there. She breaks things down into, you know, everyday jargon, not so much that clinical talk. And so I would pull this task list topic. I'd pull some resources that an entry-level tech who has no experience or understanding of behavioral momentum could easily understand these topics. I'd send it to them in advance. If they had questions, feel free to ask, but we're going to talk about it as a group. And then I pull their utilization. So I'd go through case by case by case and I'd shout out the ones, you know, that had the highest utilization and they get entered into a raffle and then we would do our, our discussion. And what I found with that is a couple of things. One, we're talking about those ABA concepts that for the life of me, I'm like bashing my head into a wall trying to explain these topics in session to them and walk <laughs> them through it. And so, you know, having that time outside a session to be able to talk about it, but also for the technicians too, that place where they can come and, you know, not feel like they're isolated on an island. Because one of the biggest mm-hmm. things I, I, the feedback, and I, I pulled my text prior to doing that was, you know, what do you want to get out of your work? What is it that you're missing? What is it that you're not getting enough of? And unanimously, it was, we want more, not just like CU type educational courses, but we want like one uh, technician, for example, he was like, Jari, you're the only adult I speak to. I go from mm-hmm. one client's home to another kiddo's school, and then I go home and I deal with my own daughter. And you're the only adult interaction I get during the day. 
And so for me, you know, it reminded me as a tech, you know, I didn't always work at a center. I wasn't home. So I know what it's like to feel like you're out on an island by yourself. So the really the big purpose of my team meeting outside of those behavioral concepts was to give them the opportunity, even virtually, to have that camaraderie and be able to talk to other techs and really hear, you know, because it's think about it from from like if you and I were working together, right? You're working on a case, it's a really tough case. And you're like, man, Kiara, this mom did this and I'm just, I'm burning out. And from your perspective, if you don't hear others in the field, you're going to think this is just you and your own experience. You're the only exactly. one. Yep. And so having them be part of this team meeting where they got to hear other texts with similar barriers that they were facing in the home, I think it, for them, it, it, it was like a sense of community and like, I'm not alone in mm-hmm. this. And then what ended up happening, they all started exchanging phone numbers and chatting with each other outside of work and meeting up at coffee shops to study. And there was that sense of community and they they didn't feel so alone. And what I actually started seeing is those concepts we were talking about in a group setting started actually to generalize during supervision. So I'd sit in there and I'd be like, oh my God, do you know what you just did? Like We've been talking about this concept for six months and <laughs> you attended two team meetings and all of a sudden it just clicked. And really it happened to be because they heard others kind of take those concepts, apply them within like an example for their client, right? Within the concept of that team meeting. And for, I guess for them, it just clicked. It was like, oh, okay, this is what she means when she wants Bob to do, you know, this. So it it was really cool. And I actually didn't think I was going to get attendance. Honestly, I didn't think anybody would want to sit for an hour after their long day. But what I ended up finding was that technicians would be upset if they couldn't make the meeting. They'd they'd message me and mm. say, hey, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. Can we reschedule? Can we meet one-on-one to go whatever, go over whatever it is you're going to talk to the group about? So, you know, I, there, was a, there was a lot of buy-in. And I wasn't expecting it, honestly. I was expecting maybe one or two texts to come. And every month, people were excited to come. So there's this fundamental principle that Skinner talks about. The organism is always right. I actually have a quote here by another founder in our field called Fred S. Keller. And he says, the student is always right. He's not asleep, not unmotivated, not sick. And he can learn a great deal if we provide the right contingencies of reinforcement. When we hear that, we think of our clients, right? But as a supervising clinician, your clients are your techs. Mm -hmm. And as an RCD like yourself, you know, your students are the clinicians, Mm -hmm. right? And so when you hear about people complaining, well, these technicians aren't trained and, and, you know, or these clinicians aren't, you know, being trained. Well, the student is always right. You know, the organism is always right. They're only responding in a way that the environment is reinforced given their instructional history. And it's our job, my job as a, you know, as a clinical leader in the organization to create contingencies such that our employees grow in their clinical skill set and knowledge you know, it's your job as an RCD to provide those type of resources and training for your clinicians. And it's our clinicians' jobs to do that for their technicians. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the way, we forget that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In some ways, like, you know, these clients are always right. They're responding in a way that's lawful. But man, my technician, right? Or man, my clinician. And the same principles govern our ch- children with autism's behavior as our behavior. And so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about how do we, how do we break down those barriers yeah. and maybe like 
talk about your work with your clinicians and how do you break down those barriers? Yeah. yeah, I love that you said that because that's something I talk to my clinicians about all the time is behavior doesn't start and stop with your client, right? It, it yep. applies to your techs. It applies to you guys. It applies to me. You know, one thing I started with my team, say a few months ago now, was is really role-playing. So taking that behavior mm-hmm. skills training model that I would use with a technician, I've started applying that with the with the team. So during our weekly team meetings, I'll typically pick, you know, um, most recently we went through role-playing um, difficult parent conversations. And so, mm-hmm. you know, just, and I was pulling things from our one-on-ones, you know, some pretty crazy scenarios that sometimes our BCBAs are faced with, right? And so I was like, okay, here guys, here's a scenario. I want someone to be the parent and I want someone to be the BCBI and and walk through it. I made everybody participate. So no one got got away with not doing it. So for me as the RCD, it was really eye-opening to see, okay, these are the the clinicians that really need some more guidance and help, um, but in a Mm -hmm. fun way that they weren't like embarrassed in front of their peers. But then they also got the chance to kind of critique each other too. And, you know, Mm practice, okay, this is maybe not the best approach. Who else wants to jump in and and give it a try? And I think for them, you know, one, it was fun. It was engaging. And I think for them, you know, having that generalized, they, you know, they were able to have some of those harder conversations without maybe looping me in. And I had a BCBA come to me and say, hey, I tried all the different strategies that we role played in our team meeting and it worked. I, I've got parent huh. on board, like this, things are going really well. So I started doing a lot of that, just role playing during our team meeting time. And I think modeling too, right? Like even at my level. So I, if, if a BCBA is not comfortable having a conversation with a parent or a technician, oftentimes I'll sit in in that meeting. Sometimes I'll run the meeting and get them to a point where, okay, I've modeled it enough for you. Now I'll sit in, but you're going to run this meeting with this technician or you're going to run this meeting with a parent. And I might chime in you know, help them along the way. But the goal is that eventually this is your caseload. These are your techs. You have autonomy. I want you to take control of, of your caseload and not feel like you have to come to me if, if you feel confident, you know? So I think the role playing has really helped in that, in that respect. For sure. I would add too that, you know, my conversation about clients, techs, clinicians also applies to parents, right? Like, and our perspective of like parent support and engagement, like we have to come to that table in a very similar understanding of how behavior works and not in such a judgmental process. Totally. And I, I think um, the biggest reminder for my team too is shaping, right? Especially mm-hmm. a parent, you know, you're co- they're coming in with years of a reinforcement history, right? Where we're, we're yep. coming in and saying, okay, we're going to change this. It's not going to happen overnight. And to expect that, really, you're doing the client a disservice and you're setting yourself up for failure by expecting 100% when they may not be quite there yet. Um, And I tell them all the time, you can write a beautifully written behavior plan that it's like, whoa, this is top notch. But if you don't have buy-in from that family or you're not meeting them where they're at right now today, you're you're never going to get there. So your beautifully written plan is pointless, right? You got you to gotta yep. shape that behavior. And same thing with the text. And I think these space exactly. kind of forget that sometimes. And it's, it's easy to forget it, right? You know, we have our caseload. We're, we're busy. We're putting out fires left and right. So it's easy to, I think, forget sometimes the principles of ABA kind of go out the window. But I think if you take that same systematic approach to your text that you would your clients and the parents, I think the outcome 
will speak for itself. I think empathy has to play a significant part in any of these perspectives, whether it's a brand new tech, right? Like I was a tech at one point, you were a tech at one point I was sweating. I was, you know, nervous and scared and, you know, at a loss of what to do. Uh, It's easy to forget those moments when you're a successful clinician or after you've had a number of, you know, clients that have made significant change. Um, It's easy to forget those moments. And now me as a parent, man, I think back to like all like the parent training sessions that I had. You know, I did parent training when I was an undergrad studying ABA, did not have children. And the love, just the lack of empathy that I would share in those moments. Being, being a behavior analyst doesn't necessarily make you a great parent. It just makes you understand like when you're making the wrong decisions for your kid, yeah. but they might be the right decisions for you as yeah. a parent, right? Yeah. Like, I, you know, and I, like, I love that you mentioned that. I don't, I don't personally have kids, but one of the things I tell families all the time is, look, it's really easy for me to sit on this side and say, hey, this is what I think should happen. But at the end of the day, if this does not meet your needs or as a family, this isn't something that you believe, all right, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's figure out what we can do today. Even if we know, you know, this approach is going to be the fastest way to reduce that behavior that's not something you believe in. It's not something that sits right with your family values. Okay, that's fine. Here, let's talk about all of the options and let's pick an option together that's probably going to be better suited to your lifestyle and what your beliefs are. It's, it's, it's a little easy to lose sight of that sometimes. Yeah. I tell you, sometimes Atticus gets the truck when he's crying at Target because I just wanted to <laughs> stop crying. I know my my girlfriend has two kids and when we're out together, she'll be like, Hey, Kiara, what what do you think I should do? I'm like, you know what you should do? Cause I've already told you like, this is all attention seeking. And what does she do? She's like, I just can't, people are looking at me. I'm like, okay, well, you know, we're all human at the end of the day, we're all human. And I think having that, um, that empathetic approach sometimes is lost on us. Even myself, you know, like there are times where it's like, okay, come back down, Kiara, think of it from their perspective. And I think that it it is, it's that perspective taking. And, you know, what I love about motivational interviewing is that it's kind of that conversation volley of really, you're just, you're reflecting back what they're Mm -hmm. saying. And it's just the easiest way once you get in the habit of that, of, and, and not to be insensitive about it, but really you're acknowledging their feelings and you're acknowledging, yes, this is difficult because it is the hardest job. Isn't the BCBA's job. It's the parent's job. At the end yeah. of the day, we go home. The techs get to go yep. home. They don't. They they are home. Yep. And they are living that every day. And so, you know, I I think keeping that in mind is is really important. The second hardest job is the tech. I would agree, hundred percent. Right. Yep. And like I, for our technicians that are working out there, like they are the tip of our spears, mm-hmm. right? And um, they are the ones that can make a difference. Yeah or not make a difference given the right support. Yeah. Um, but they're often out there alone in a home mm-hmm. and the job they do while incredibly important, is also incredibly difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to understand that every time we talk with them. Yeah. I think, um, you know, kind of going back to the empathy pieces and, you know, I see this a lot too in general where a tech goes into a home and, you know, they're quick to to maybe make a judgment, right, about the home and, and whatever else. And it's easy for the BCBA to get frustrated. And But you have to kind of think about it from the tech perspective, too. 
you know, you don't know what you don't know. So for those mm-hmm. techs that maybe are brand new to the field, they may not have ever experienced a home that's maybe not what they might deem as clean or or tidy or, you know, whatever. So kind of having that, again, like I think that goes back to the perspective taking of, okay, we'll sit your tech down and have an open discussion of sometimes in this field, you're going to see that these things, it doesn't mean that this family doesn't care that they're not trying. They're just, they could be doing the best they can with what they have. Um, And trying to get your tech to practice that perspective taking too, and, and hearing your tech out, they're frustrated, right? If they're out in the field, they're dealing with it every day. You get your 10%. That's it. You're done for the week and you move on. Um, You know, I think listening to their concerns and not brushing them off, you know, obviously as BCBAs, we've, we've spent more time in the field. So for us, it's probably easier to, Oh, it's fine. It's not a big deal for that tech. If they're coming to you, it is a big deal. And Mm -hmm. so spending that time talking to them, talking through it and, and really explaining to them, Hey, you know, we're going to address this during our next parent meeting. But here are the things, here are the tools I can give you right now today to kind of move forward. Um, and I think that that sometimes is lost with our, you know, not every clinician, but I think sometimes that's lost, that that practice, that perspective taking and having empathy with the tech and, and understanding because we were there once too. Yep. I was there and I quit in two weeks. Just to let you know. My first job, I quit in two weeks because I just could not do it. And I wasn't trained and supported. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's tough. And I think um, the places as a tech that I, I left were places where I didn't feel supported. There were places yeah. where we had a ton of BCBAs everywhere. But when I needed help, I was made to feel stupid for asking for help or, you know, even the looks I'd get. And I'm, you know... It, And I'll never forget it. I had one session with a client where it was like my second or third day. They did like a week-long training and then threw you in. They didn't teach me how to use the data collection system. So I was trying to wing that while working with this client. And it was a brand new kiddo that I, and the type of client I'd never worked with before. So I'm sitting there and he, the supervisor comes in and now she has someone else shadowing her. So now there's extra people in the room that I wasn't anticipating. Mm. So now I'm like sweating. I'm terrified and nervous. And kiddo starts engaging in behaviors. He got access to a toy that I just wasn't quick enough to grab. And the supervisor looked at me and was like, really? And in that moment, I was just like, that was so punishing for me. You not only did you let your frustration show with me, you made a comment that made me feel stupid. And then you have someone sitting here observing, which now adds... A, a layer of of nervousness, right, to the situation, yeah. and then I have a kid who's going off right now. This is not helpful. So, you know, I ended up leaving that place because I was like, "This is not collaborative. This is very like they they're expecting the world and not really providing you the strategies and the tools you need." So, it's definitely a balance. That, like in our science, like we're so data every single day focused, yep. which is really important. And it's part of the precision of our science, but sometimes we lose sight of the infinite game that we are in. Yeah. Right. Simon Sinek has this book and, and he talks about like the goals that we have are for our clients are, are infinite in nature. Like, like what we're doing now should impact them for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And the work that you do as a RCD should impact your clinicians and the technicians for much longer than the day that you're observing them, right? It should 
make meaningful differences for time to come. All right. So I have one last question for you, Kiara. What's your why? What drives you? What's your purpose? What gets you up every morning to go to work? So funny you bring that up because I was just talking to a clinician yesterday, actually one of my girlfriends in Arizona, she's a BCBA and we were talking about like burnout, right? Like, and so we were talking about, okay, if we do a preference assessment on ourselves, what are the things that we, you know, like in a hierarchy, right? What are our top three things that keep us going, keep us motivated? Um, and how do we come into contact with that more frequently so we don't burn out? Mm-hmm. I would say for me, um, I really love, one, I love doing my fidelity overlaps with the clinicians. I love like coaching the clinicians, but for me, it's my time where I get to see the kiddos, which I don't really get to have that interaction much anymore. So seeing that for me, you know, I I try to, anytime I'm in a one-on-one, hey, let's do an overlap. Yeah, let's let's overlap (laughs) that kiddo. Because for me, it's just, it's that that contact that I don't have anymore or as much of. Um, So I think interactions with the clients for me is what keeps me motivated and I think on the clinician side, having a clinician come to me where it's like, man, they need so much handholding, even at the BCBA level, and they need so much support, but getting them to a point where it's like, hey, Kiara, I did this. I didn't check in with you, but I did it. What are your thoughts? And like, yeah, that's exactly what I would have done. That's exactly how I would have coached you. And seeing their growth as as clinicians and growth within their career to me is very reinforcing. Um and I think I, if I had to pick another thing that keeps me motivated is, you know, I guess more on like the business side of it, you know, seeing our growth. Um, so looking at our numbers every day, looking to see, okay, hey, we ended today at 311 cases. That's two more than what we had yesterday. That means two more kiddos in service, two more clients that were impacting their lives. Um, so for me, that's also pretty motivating, which I, I don't know that many clinicians would say that, but for me, it's, I find it very motivating. Well, if you believe in our science, right, and, and, and the work that we do, the more that we can serve, yeah. the more that we can impact, you know, the more change that we can bring about in the lives of clients, families, communities, and technicians and clinicians. So it's, it's all good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kiara, for joining Thanks me. For really appreciate me. it. And that concludes season one of the Do Wonders podcast. Eight incredible stories told by eight powerful people all aligned to serve Centria's mission to help every child living with autism develop, pursue, and achieve their own goals and dreams through high quality ABA therapy and support. Thank you so much for subscribing and look out for season two. And until then, do wonders.